Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast. Around an hour before Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022, tens of thousands of satellite internet connections across Europe suddenly went offline. The Kremlin's plan to occupy its neighbour had begun, not on the ground, but in cyberspace. A strike to disrupt Ukraine's military communications, which also did collateral damage for thousands of miles beyond. It is perhaps the most tangible example we have of how war really is waged in this intangible domain. The UK's armed forces also operate in cyberspace, both offensively and defensively. In 2020, they were brought together with the intelligence services in a new cyber force with an annual budget of tens of millions of pounds as part of the UK's strategic command. Leading the effort is the Deputy Commander of STRATCOM, Lieutenant General Tom Coppinger-Sims. He's been explaining to me what the cyber force does and how, along with the challenges of generating such a force, with a very different military skill set. Lieutenant General Coppinger-Sims, great to speak to you. Thank you for your time today. Um, Can you just start by telling us what is the National Cyber Force and how big an operation is it? Thanks, and thanks for having me on today. So the National Cyber Force we set up in 2020, um, and it's a partnership between uh, defence and the intelligence agencies, particularly GCHQ. uh, And it's set up to be our means of projecting power in and through cyberspace to keep the country safe, both online, but also in the electromagnetic spectrum. And what does it do on a day-to-day basis? Well, you're, you're probably aware because in the open media, there's there's constant reports of the sorts of cyber threats that are out there, whether it's, you know, uh, state actors, you know, our adversaries or competitors around the world, or indeed the levels of cybercrime that are out there. And, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about, for instance, interfering with elections. So you're aware of the sort of risks and threats that are out there. And the National Cyber Force plays its part in countering those threats and limiting the freedom of our adversaries of of sort of enacting those threats and trying to do us harm, whether that's stealing our data or stealing our money or stealing our intellectual property. Can you just give me a sense of how busy you are? I mean, how great is the threats that that you outline there? Well, I think it's safe to say that um, whereas as a soldier, you know, I used to go on operations, you know, once every two, two or three years uh, in cyber operations, we're working every single day of every single um, of every single week through the year. So we are permanently, permanently engaged. And as we used to say in the army, you know, we're in constant contact with the enemy um, because there's that level of um, threat and activity in cyberspace. And as I say, that varies between, you know, state actors um and and criminal actors and of course it's not always easy to separate between the one and the other Uh, can you just um give me an idea of the balance and how you work out the balance between defensive and offensive in uk cyber operations well i suppose like like anything in in military operations until you're safe until you're secure you don't have a basis to operate from so inevitably defensive cyber, whilst it might be perceived by some as the less glamorous side of cyber, is hugely important. And that's really about providing us the freedom to operate. And as you know, whether it's the Army, Navy, the Air Force or wider government, we all operate online. We all rely on uh, telecommunications, 5G networks, computing, the Internet to do our, do our business. You know, we, we rely on all of those systems. 
So until we've really got that safe and secure, you can't really do anything else. So that's hugely important, even if it's less prominent. And then, of course, we need to be able to project that power through cyberspace as well uh, with partners uh, around the world, but to be able to limit the freedom of action of our adversaries and those who are trying to do us harm. Can you just give me a bit more of an idea of practically what that means on a day-to-day basis? Is is it simply a case of a lot of people sitting behind keyboards and monitors, or is it more than that? Well, there's more people sitting behind keyboards and monitors than digging trenches in this space. That's absolutely right. Um, But within that, you know, within that invisible world, um, that domain, as we would call it, there are an awful lot of people doing a whole range of activities within that. So, um, you know, you will be told by your uh, internet provider or your uh, phone provider once in a while that you need to upgrade your software and patch. So that is a very, very significant part of online defensive work, is making sure our systems are patched, that we have the latest software available, and that means the software is working against the latest threats that we've identified online. So quite a lot of people are are doing that, facilitating that, checking that. Um, Quite a lot of people are doing what we're doing now. So communicating with each other, making sure the threat is understood, making sure that data is shared across the world, working particularly within industry, you know, these big tech companies who really understand, uh, understand the threat, that we're getting the right data from them about what the threat looks like and we're able to counter it. What are the greatest threats the UK is facing at the moment? So online, I mean, there's a huge amount of state activity um, that's directed an awful lot against America and Ukraine, but also against the UK um, because we're seen as a leader in this area. Um, often that's about going after um, security data, but very often it's about going after industrial data, actually, industrial property. Um, I think outside the strictly military sphere, of course, there's an awful lot of criminality in this space. You know, most people will have heard of ransomware, where, um, where uh, criminals will, will operate online, will inject software onto your systems that then locks up your data and um, they want uh, money for that data to be released. And then businesses have a difficult uh, conversation, whether they pay the money or whether they come to law enforcement or the government and say what the situation is. And then we help them get control of their data again and they don't pay the ransom. So it's those sorts of threats uh, that we're talking about. Is there a particular one that you could tell us about without divulging too much? Um, well, I mean, actually, they've been pretty well covered on the op- in, in open source. I mean, one of the things that occupies a lot of our thinking in, in defence is what we saw at the start of Russia's brutal illegal invasion of Ukraine 18 months ago, where they hacked into the Viasat um, satellite uh, system. Uh, that was really targeting Ukraine's uh, communications. Um, so you can understand why at the start of the invasion they were trying to, to reduce the Ukrainian armed forces' ability to communicate. But in doing so, they also um, took significant amounts of uh, German agriculture and alternative energy systems offline uh, because they were also dependent on that satellite system. So that sort of ability to interfere with physical infrastructure that we depend on, um, both in the military and across government, occupies quite a lot of our our thinking at the moment, how to protect from that and how to constrain uh, threat actors from being able to do that. Were you able to offer any support or expertise in in that event that you described? Well, so as we've been very public about the level of support we give to Ukraine, whether that's gifting, material um, or anything else. And I think, again, as a matter of public record, both nations, you know, the US, ourselves, but many others um, across NATO, but actually across the world, 
lent help to the Ukrainians. And um, it's also a matter of public record that some of the biggest tech companies in the world rallied around to help the Ukrainians, for instance, to protect their data, their government data, so that even if the Russians had got to Kyiv, they'd be able to maintain continuity of government because the data was now safe outside Ukraine's borders and the government of Ukraine could carry on functioning even if the Russians had got to Kyiv. So yes, a whole bunch of us helping them. But I have to say, whilst we've given support that we're really proud of, Ukraine has an amazingly digitally skilled workforce um, in and out of uniform. And you know they've done immense amounts of good work since 2014, since the first invasion. So whilst we've helped them, actually it's their hard work to build resilience, to build defence that they've been really been relying on. And are there people trying to attack our infrastructure in the way that you describe was attempted with Ukraine? Uh, yes, I think it's fair to say that we're seeing people probing our infrastructure, our communication systems, yes, very, very regularly. Again, for a wide range of, uh, of, of reasons, sometimes it's espionage trying to steal our secrets. Sometimes it's industrial espionage trying to steal our intellectual property. And sometimes it's criminal. And of course, this is a cunning old game. So sometimes people are posing as uh, criminals to try and steal our secrets. And occasionally people are posing as spies to actually steal money. And how would you explain to a serviceman or woman who may fight at the front line with equipment, sometimes like decades old, that it is worth spending millions of pounds on cyber? Well, even our decades old equipment relies on either online cyberspace or it lies on the electromagnetic spectrum. And we define cyberspace as including that spectrum. So if you want your radios to work, if you want your tank to be able to speak to the tank next door, or if you want the tank to be able to speak to the artillery piece, leave alone for the army to speak to the navy or air force it's absolutely critical that we protect those systems we protect that data and we enable both the army the navy and the air force to conduct their daily business because there's there's pretty much nothing we do these days that doesn't rely on cyberspace to one extent or another and why do you think uh, we need a military force to counter these things? We have GCHQ, um, we have the National Cybersecurity Centre. Uh, why do we need a military element as well, the military cyber force? Well, because we um, legally and constitutionally, we retain the sort of use of force uh, to those people in uniform. So, you know, that's a that's a legal requirement for us as military folk to be able to wage war if you like on the on the nation's behalf and you know that's where the partnership comes in so what gchq and uh, some of the other intelligence agencies do in cyber is hugely important but when we're supporting uh, war fighting or indeed other military activity we need soldiers sailors and aviators to be doing that not least because they understand what's going on at the front line but also because it does get to that stage of sort of military force so essentially, the civilians can defend, uh, but only you can strike back in cyberspace. Is that correct? Uh, no, not entirely. And again, the National Cyber Force, which is a partnership between ourselves and GCHQ and uh, the Secret Intelligence Service, as well as our scientists at DSTL, uh, they can be engaged in offensive activity or projecting power through cyberspace. But if it was part of a military campaign and it, we were delivering um, effects into the battle space, that, that get close to military force, then that really needs to be uh, having a uniformed person involved uh, for the release of that effect. Now, you're talking to us um, from an event in Lancashire, home of the National Cyber Force, uh, to inspire the next generation of cyber specialists. How big is our need for people with these skills and how big will it become, do you think? 
Well, it's vast. I mean, it's vast nationally. You know, our lack of digital and cyber skills. I mean, we, we, we lead the world in some areas of it, but um, there ain't a country I know in, in, in the world that, that doesn't have a lack of digital and cyber skills, such as is sort of technology growing, uh, e-commerce growing, online banking, online shopping, online entertainment growing. So there's a national shortage of skills as there is across the world. And within that, as I've explained, we've got to be able to protect those systems and where necessary project power across the world. So we need an awful lot of uh, new skills in defense, um, new mindsets and skill sets, new uh, elements of sort of diverse thinking, uh, particularly cognitive um, skills. So the ability not just to understand machines, but how humans and machines interact and how you shape perception and behavior online and, and through through machines so there's a huge requirement for it and as you say we want to get people excited we want to get people excited about the sorts of roles people can have online uh, and get folk who might have never thought about joining government to join government and indeed the armed forces and how how exactly do do you get people excited about the, the prospect because the traditional view of the armed forces which has asks for extraordinary physical capability, it may well not appeal to people if they think that what they're going to be doing is sitting behind a monitor. Yeah, I mean, I to be honest, I think the um, the idea that all cyber operators are, are not particularly fit or or active is is a little bit of a myth. And, and, you know, I don't see evidence of that in everyday life. But you're absolutely right. We have very few bars to entry from sort of physical um, capability. And we want, we want everybody to take part because what we're really after is, is brain power and, and, and technical and digital um, uh, ability and, uh, and, and the ability to learn quickly and spot patterns and enjoy solving problems. So um, we are trying to open up to a far wider range of people. How do we get them excited? I mean, where I am downstairs, there's some primary school students, there are university students. It's not very hard to get them excited. You know, we've got an escape room down there that they're playing around in. Um, we're talking to them about what happens online. We're talking about the sort of things we can do online that frankly is illegal for anybody else to do online. They get very, very excited at the prospect of that. They get very excited about going home, <laughs> tell their mum and dad to upgrade their passwords. So it's not hard to get people excited. I think what's, uh, what's interested is to show to them how they can get involved, how they can get the next level of skills, you know, whether it's a 13-year-old about to start their, their GCSEs or a sixth former thinking about, you know, university or are they going to do a graduate level apprenticeship or indeed a graduate thinking, right, how do I get to a PhD or a master's degree? Um, so I think it's really just better communication with folk, uh, explaining what they can do, explaining the huge range of careers. And this is not all technical, you know, they'll, they're sort of, yeah, there are other roles that do require some technical knowledge, you know, analysts, um, leaders of teams, planners, and then the whole range of non-technical skills, you know, lawyers, communicators, um, you know, even even folk with an English literature degree will be will be welcome. Um, so it's not very hard to get people uh, interested and excited. What we need to do is make it really easy for them to see how they join, how they put their shoulders to the wheel and how they come and protect their country. Of course, uh, you always have the private sector to contend with and cyber skills are a big demand there, often with more money to offer. How do you compete with that? Well, as I said, we just do much more interesting things that they do. And I'm sorry, <laughs> okay. sorry to be rude. They, they do pay more. 
Um, but we have an amazing learning and development offer. I mean, we are an amazing skills organization. As you probably know, the British Army is the largest apprenticeship organization in Europe. I think the Navy is the third and the RAF is the eighth or something like that. You add up that, all that together. Defense is just amazing, for instance, at apprenticeships. And we spend a lot of our time uh, in, in the armed forces training and developing people. And that's really what we offer, this amazing learning and development opportunity. We also pay them pretty well, and we've got special pay spines coming in for some of these technical trades. And did I mention we do stuff which is just so much more fun than anybody else in this area? And we've got some of the most fascinating problems that you could possibly imagine to solve. And I think the other bit to that is, you know, we accept that the model is going to be different. You know, I joined the army 35 years ago. Here I still am. We know that not everybody's going to do that. You know, people might join for three to five to seven years, go off to industry, go off to an intelligence agency, maybe then come back. So this idea of lateral careers, zigzag careers, is going to be a feature of this. And we accept that mm. we're not actually keep everybody for 35 years. They're going to come and go, but they're going to be constantly updating their skills and getting better and better. And just finally, what do you see as the potential cyber threats in the future? So uh, inevitably, there's a lot of uh, talk about AI at the moment and this, you know, um, the ability of AI to create, um, to create text, to create code, in fact. And the, the thing about artificial intelligence is really the speed and scale of effect that it can generate. And we're already seeing that in terms of cyber threats, um, both the threats to our machines, but also critically, I mentioned earlier, the threats to our brains and our perceptions. So whether it's misinformation and disinformation online, you're seeing generative AI get involved in that to be able to create, you know, false stories, deep fakes, if you like, um, false pictures, images, text to confuse people, to uh, change their behavior, um, and frankly, to put lies and falsehoods out there. So you're seeing quite a lot of that in what we might call the cognitive space, and clearly in the ability to generate malware also generative AI has a, has a role in that. So what you're gonna see is this sort of explosion, I think, of both speed and mass of threats online. And guess what? We're gonna to have to use the same tools to counter that because it's a race. It's a, it's a constant competition. And, and we're fully engaged in it through the National Cyber Force and with our partners in GCHQ through the National Cyber Security Center. I better let you get on with your work. Thank you so much for your time today. Great to speak to you, Lieutenant General Coppinger Sims. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Kate. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP.